0: Welcome to the Habits of an Impactful Fundraiser from We Are For Good Studios. This limited podcast series is designed to help you get clarity for your role within a nonprofit and help you build the habits that lead to long-term growth to find balance along the journey. If you don't know Mike Dirksen, go back and you just need to follow him. Let me just put that out there. Yeah. He's the founder and CEO of Build Good. When you talk to Mike, when you get to know Mike, Holy he is about building community around giving. He is about getting us oriented around really doing this really ethically and threading really brilliant storytelling because we understand like there's a greater mission behind this and he shows up and shares his wisdom on linkedin nearly on a daily basis he has an incredible podcast the build good fundraising podcast go add that to your queue subscribe to that we asked mike specifically today because you could talk about a lot of things but the habits of an impactful annual giving officer and so i can't wait to dive in with you Let's just lead straight in there because we don't even know if that's the right title, but we know annual giving is a component that every evolved development shop is going to have. It's people that are chasing yeah. the base, you know. And so let's we like to kick off this conversation asking the right bigger questions. So if you're, you know, annual giving is in your purview, get not getting into the tactics. What's the bigger right question to ask about how you show up to do your job in a really impactful way?
1: Yeah. So the way that I would like to frame this conversation is looking at it through the lens of, of the two most important things that matter that will make the, the biggest difference in your annual giving. Number one, it's the, the quality of your business decisions. So business decisions are, how are we going to find new donors? How are we going to keep those new donors? How are we going to lead those donors toward greater generosity? How are we going to lead those donors to greater involvement and how are we going to fund the entire pipeline from first-time giver to legacy lever, right? Um, because oftentimes, we just split that out. We're like, how can we get the next event to be more successful than the last? How can we yep. get more yep. major donors? Um, how can we optimize our subject line so more people open our emails? By the way, I love that stuff. I, I, I know, love so like cool. the optimizing stuff.
2: But do love stuff, it. But, <laughs> and you're great but it at
1: is, it. it. It's just this, this small piece of this larger strategy, which is like, how are we going like, to resource our shop to actually look at the entire pipeline and fund it from first time giver to legacy lever, right? And th- that's the quality of our business decisions. And then number two, um, the second thing that will make the greatest difference in your fundraising, and this is a point of view, it's the strength of, of our relationships with our donors. And now we, we, all, we all talk about like fundraising as a relationship business, right? Um, but like, what does a relationship look like? It's not 12 months. Like good relationships are three, four, 10 years, right? And good relationships ebb and flow. Good relationships are stronger at times. They're weaker at times. Um, but that's like, take the 10-year view of the relationship. Don't take the view wow. of I'm acquiring a donor today. Um, if they don't make a second gift within 18 months, I'm getting back on the acquisition hamster wheel and I'm, and I'm, I'm just going to keep doing that. right? Um, and, and there's both of those things, like the quality of our business decisions and investing in the strength of a relationship with our donors. That is very, very hard to do for leadership because those are tomorrow things and the day after tomorrow things right? And leaders are getting judged on today things. So good luck walking into a board meeting and saying, check this out. We're going to start prioritizing donor lifetime value or donor lifetime love, as I call it. Like we're going to start prioritizing that, right? And the board goes, well, okay, but how are you going to make budget this year? And that's totally understandable. You got to balance the two, but it's harder to make the decisions that lead to long-term success because you might not even be around to reap the rewards of that success. (laughs) So quite frankly, you're going to build something that somebody else gets to reward from, right? Um, okay. And B, your your success on the job is also dependent on what happens today.
0: Holy smokes. I mean, we joked before we started that this could be like eight different podcast episodes. And I'm like, just your answer could be two to, two to three different ones. I mean, what a brilliant way to start this conversation. I mean,
2: right out of the chute. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Dirksen, you can see why you have a different conversation and a different lens when you work with Mike or when you hang out with Mike. Because Mike, you have two recovering annual giving uh, directors here, (laughs) directors of annual giving here. And I can assure you, I'm not going to speak for John, but I can speak for myself. I never had that mindset when I walked into annual giving. But if I had, I think I would have looked at, everything differently. That donor lifetime love is such a powerful concept and it really gets back to what we call in our second core value of our company, which is playing the long game. And when you play the long game, I can assure you a board member is going to understand long-term vision and how we have to plant seeds that may not yield much fruit at the beginning, but oh my gosh, if we really dig in to the intentionality of how we move our donors through this journey, it's going to change everything. It's not just Mm -hmm. going to change the giving. It's going to change engagement. It's going to change the way that they talk about us. It's going to elevate the way that they look at the brand and the way that everyone else looks at the brand. So Mike Dirksen, you are truly our annual giving whisperer. So (laughs) cannot wait to ask you the second question here, which is talk to us about habits. You know, we would love to hear about three maybe daily habits or actions that someone in the annual giving department could utilize to find success in their role. What would you say to that?
1: Got it. All right. Some of this is going to be like highly tactical and some of it might be a little bit more strategic, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in terms of a daily habit, look, it's always good to look for who came in, like who, who made the first gift in the last week or last few days. Right. And prioritize a phone call. that's that's just a really good habit to have. it's It's um, this isn't maybe a daily habit, but but a habit that I think a team needs to set is to create a retention day because there's all these things we should be doing. You need a system for congratulating donor on the anniversary of their gift. You need a system for acknowledging donors when they hit three years of giving, five years of giving, whatever. You need a system for, and it feels so overwhelming. Just create a retention day. Every first Monday of the month, every last Friday of the month, the entire fundraising team doesn't get to set meetings. It's retention day. Here's what we do on retention day. We pull a list of everybody who hit an anniversary this month and we call them and we send them a handwritten card or we make them a video and we do something meaningful. We look at all new donors and we do something meaningful for them. We uh, look at whose credit card is about to lapse and we call them and we're going to get ahead of that. Right. We're not going to wait for the notification that somebody's credit card (laughs) has lapsed. And then we chase them around for the next three months trying to get them signed up for their monthly gift. Right. So that's that's a habit of there's all these things that you can just pool into one retention day and it sends an internal signal to your team that retention matters at this shop. It matters so much that every single month we're going to be intentional about it and we're not going to book meetings and nobody can get on your calendar that day. It's retention day. Right. And you start building a culture around donor retention. Now, that's not a daily habit, it's it's a monthly habit. Um, But um, that's one of the things. Can I jump in there? Because
0: as a former annual giving director for a long time, um, at the end of the day, it feels like it always came down to like money, you know? And Mm -hmm. looking back now, and especially seeing the movements that have like turned into massive uprisings in our industry, it's like they're relentless in their retention. And it's like, how is that not our main focus in this effort? So I love that you've centered that and making it a team-wide thing is going to start breaking down the walls that it's like, it's not just about money. It's also about like, are we keeping people in the fold and playing the long game? Like it's going to take a long time of shifting that mindset. Yeah.
2: And PS, it's super expensive To acquire a new donor. It's so much cheaper to retain one. So there is like, I think, a business case to this. And it also just makes sense as a human being. Like when you walk (sighs) in to a store that you love or you're buying something for the first time, the experience that you have there is going to inform your next move. And so... We know this. I'm like, I just want to hype up nonprofit right now. We know how to make someone feel seen, welcome. We get hospitality. Why are we not pouring more into this? And that's just a, a, yeah. a rhetorical question because I just think what you're dropping here is gold,
1: Mike. Yeah. Kind of on, on the same level in, in having having somebody be be heard and seen is something that annual giving doesn't do enough is actually gathering qualitative feedback. So for the most part, I think most people are getting good at looking at data um, or at least collecting. For the most part, people are on CRMs, at the very very least are capturing gifts. Somebody can come in and help you create a dashboard or analyze that, whatever. Um, But the qualitative data, here's what happens, is a board member or uh, the CEO's uh, spouse um, says, I don't like this campaign, I didn't like this at the event, Um, In the meeting's like, we got to change that next time, right? And you, as the annual giving officer, you need to come prepared with the donor's voice. Um, Not just one donor's voice, but what's sort of a majority sentiment, right? We're all different. Not everybody's going to like everything we do. Let's just agree to that. But what do your true believers think? What do the people think that show up for you consistently? The people who've been given to you for three, five, 10 years, um, what do they think? And so the, the way you do that is you have a bit of a standard set of questions that you ask on donor calls if the door is open and you log those answers. And over time, you're going to have a bit of a pattern recognition thing going on, right? You're going to be able to identify some sentiments that are coming through. You're going you're gonna to sort of see what the majority sentiment is on some issues. The important thing is that you ask roughly the same question every time and, and not just like, different leading questions that you feel like asking at the moment. (laughs) So you need to create yourself a bit of a framework. Here's three to five questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to log the answers. And then, you know, six months in, I'm going to have a very good idea of what the donor's voice is. Um, And that's going to influence how I go about my fundraising and how I represent the donor at the team meeting. Because I'm going to put an empty chair on that board table. And I'm going to say, like, that's the supporter sitting there right? Like we're going to respect that. They're in here too. We can also put a chair for the people we're serving. Like put these, like the people who need to be at the table, but who aren't at the very least, if they can't be there, put an empty chair there and reference to that chair and be like, they're in the room. So we need to talk about their voice as well.
2: The inclusive approach of that, the visual of doing something like that. John, can you even imagine how that would shift viewpoints and culture to approach it that way?
0: Mike, I love so it, too, because it's the next question is, why are they not here? Like, why yeah. do we not prioritize that? But drawing attention to it. Yes, <laughs>
1: to all <laughs> of this. <Mike. laughs> I'll, I'll add one more, more, more habit. Um, you know, it, it can be daily. It can be weekly, whatever. But you got to be this is an ongoing thing. You got to be a student of the game. John, you talk about this, about how, how you and Becky built um, We Are For Good on a recent podcast. Right. You got to be a student of the game. And the game's been afoot for a very long time. So you've got a few tools that you're going to use when you work in individual giving, not just for fundraising, but also, again, to have the donor voice present. And, and the greatest tool you're going to have is storytelling all around, yeah. right? Preach it. And that, that game's been going on since 300 years before Christ. Like Aristotle <laughs> wrote Poetics 300 years before Christ. <laughs> and it's basically about how to tell a good story. And we still use those same concepts today. There's, we're sitting on a body of knowledge that has been very well uh, research-tested, proven. It is changing. I, I am not one to say, you know, we should do the way things have always been done. But one thing that doesn't change as fast is human psychology. And so persuasion and storytelling, your tools are going to change, your approach is going to change. Thank goodness we're more honest and ethical and transparent about the way we tell stories. But the way the human brain gets sucked into a story and the way the human brain can start to relate a lot better with a point of view if it's told through a story that hasn't changed in forever so be a student of that game and learn it well it's going to serve you you know what even if you don't work in fundraising a few years from now hopefully you do it's a noble and beautiful profession but even if you have other plans that's one skill that you can't ever be good enough at it's going to serve you well in every single job in life
2: I couldn't agree more with you. And I just have to add on to that. If you can tell the story of the base, well, not just your top of your pyramid, then people are going to see themselves. In the base. It, it serves not only the person who's being profiled and we will always throw in there, you tell that story with dignity. An Ethical storytelling approach is always going to serve everyone best, but it's going to allow other people to see themselves through the struggle and the uplift of the person that you are profiling. So start with the stories of the base. And if you're going in and asking these questions, you're going to get those stories already. Yeah. So be a keen listener and use it. Just keep reading recycling it in those stories mm. in. It's going to help you. Your content creator or your marketer is going to love you. Um, yes. I'm eating up every bit of this, Mike. You just get us. Thank you for just being so evolved.
0: You also give me validation for, you know, yeah. sometimes we go this way instead of data, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. we can, we can hang in the storytelling really easily that we have to get pulled around on the data. And sometimes we talk about that as like, we love data, but we also love trusting our gut of like seeing what people are saying. And I think like the culture aspect of getting people to talk and pulling out the why and getting to be part of that conversation. Also, like what kind of uplift does that give your team? I think as they get to be experiencing that and then you can come armed with this like head and heart case for why we need to do something, which is just so much more powerful than just yeah.
1: numbers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I I argue that you should start with the heart. Start with your with whatever you want to call it, your gut, your intuition, what the owners are telling you. That's gonna give you a hypothesis. Go with that, test it. The data is gonna tell you whether uh, you are right or not, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. So true. <laughs> the, the
1: data alone is a bit of a low resolution picture the feedback from donors alone, the qualitative stuff is a bit of a low resolution picture. But if you merge them, you get a very high definition, like if you, if you do a good job, right? Like you get a high yeah. definition picture of what's kind of going on here.
0: Okay, as we start to think about this next aspect of the conversation is how do we start yeah. prioritizing our time? And there's a lot of relationships. If you're shepherding the base, there's potentially thousands yeah. of people you know that you could spend time with. How do you advise people to prioritize relationships in this annual giving
1: role? Yeah, the reality is you're going to have to prioritize some relationships. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. I, I wish you didn't, but you're going to have to, right? So, um, and, and the relationships that you can not prioritize on a more high touch point, you're going to do everything you can to still make that communication as thoughtful and human and loving as possible. You're going to put craft and care into it. The relationships that you are going to prioritize, um, uh, peer-to-peer is a good example of getting thousands of donors into your system or hundreds at one time. And then like, yeah. ah, what do I do? Um, totally. The people organizing that event, they're your true believer. They're the ones who rallied their friends and family around you. Um, so that's a, you can turn that person into a super fan, right? That's, that's the person that you prioritize. Um, long-term donors and loyal donors, you always prioritize. If, if, if somebody's been giving to you for three consecutive years, that is a person who is a super fan. Um, they're a true believer. You, you 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 treat everyone well, but you start but but you do, like intentionally you connect with that person as much as you can. Um, donors who upgrade, right? And um, like somebody gives you a gift, it's like 50 bucks. All of a sudden, the next one's 100 bucks. All of a sudden, the next one's 200 bucks. It's like, whoa, this is like falling working. in love, right? Like this, <laughs> this, is, this is moving forward and um, sometimes quickly, right? Like you can also look at the velocity of that. And um, so, so those, are, those are good people to prioritize. Getting us away from money. Donors who keep showing up, events, volunteering, um, engaging with you online, replying to emails. Um, there's some people who are just up for it. And they, they might not be like really big money donors, um, but that's that's okay. Um, it's not necessarily about getting that big check, right? It's first time giver yeah. to legacy lever. That's what we're talking about. So, um, so we prioritize that relationship. And then uh, another one uh, is internal relationships. Because
2: Ooh, I'm so glad as, a, this.
1: as a fundraiser, specifically individual giving, direct response, communications, marketing, some of that, you're going to have to go, you're going to have to go gather stories, gather information, gather facts, gather data. Um, and you need to gather relationships first before you can do that. You need to, right? So I, I used to work in this place, um, which was a homeless service provider and the person running the actual overnight shelter was like the most protective dad ever right like nobody came between him and the people in that shelter at night <laughs> um but but we every now and again i was also in charge of pr i needed stories i needed somebody to talk to the to the to the cameras so um i i became really good friends with that guy and and nobody else could sort of get in there, except the people who had actually done the work of becoming his friend. And now you've built up trust. And yeah, you're going to chip in some of that, right? You're going you're gonna to be like, hey, can you do me a solid? I really need this story. Here's why it matters. Here's why it's important. Here's how it helps the overall place. And by the way, I know that this is out of your wheelhouse. <laughs> but if a friend's asking that of you, it's a lot harder to say no. It's a lot easier to say yes than if just a colleague is asking you who hasn't invested in that relationship, right? So you need to become a relationship player internally. Oftentimes when you work in annual giving, you're a technical player. You're a good writer. You're a good marketer. Um, You know, sometimes you're a good designer, photographer, whatever it is. It's great to be a technical player, but you need to become a relationship player. That is what will serve you the most both to be successful in your career, but also in your role in that nonprofit.
2: The reason I love this response so much is that you've thrown out relationships that are both powered by the head and the heart. Um, And I think that that's a really important point to make here because we can be trained up on all the things to find, you know, doublers and people who are, you know, you call it velocity, people that are moving at a very fast pace. There are data points and ways that we can put triggers into the database for that. But the human part, the soft stuff, I mean, people call them soft skills, which I think just kind of minimizes, (laughs) you know, what the power of what that is in the human to human connection in our work. Because you're right. Sometimes the gatekeeper is that executive assistant. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. the guy that's staying at that homeless shelter. And if you don't have relationship equity with everybody, and, and this is, goes back again to you know the thing we hate about power dynamics. If you're only prioritizing the person with power, then you're not going to be able to have a full relationship and get exactly what you want. And P.S., Be a kind human being and see that person, see the person at the end of that. It's going to make everybody feel better. And then talk about the impact while you're there. Hey, John at the homeless shelter, I'm just using your name, John, you know, look at this story thank you for helping me bring this to bear. I mean, what an incredible internal stewardship that's going to help you get more down the line because they see the impact of how opening that door really didn't impact the mission. That's so fantastic, Mike. Okay, I want to move into one of my favorite segments called Do This, Not That. And I'm really excited about it. I'm rubbing my hands together because I am excited for you to sunset some of these (laughs) long-held traditions of lapel pins and donor recognition (laughs) society. Or whatever you're going to throw out, um, or maybe talk, you're not,
0: or know? maybe you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe
2: there's maybe the lapel pin is the thing that will change the world, <laughs> and I'm just not aware of it. So talk to us a little bit about you know some of those habits and the do this, do not vein that are going to really sure. make an impactful annual giving officer.
1: Okay, I mean we we can we can spend a lot of time here. So let me let me quickly in my mind sort some of these, but I think um stories right like we talked about this um stories is is a very powerful tool the stories of the people you help but also the stories of the people who are supporting you um because good fundraising kind of holds up a mirror and says i'm like you you're like me we're different than other people but we're different than other people together right so oh. that's that's the um, your value of community is everything Right, Um, community is all of us doing this one thing together, and it kind of separates us from some other people because we we believe this. We are for this. We are for good, right? Um, Versus, you know, I don't know if there's a "we are for evil" out there, but um, you're (laughs) you're like clearly. (laughs) (laughs) So don't uh, just maybe tell a story of somebody once in an appeal or in an email. Do tell it many different ways and in many different channels and through and to many different people right so a story well told you can repurpose that in many many different ways do record a lot of stuff that you do like we're recording video right now right Um, do record conversations with donors if they're okay with it oftentimes I don't recommend that every now and again some donors are going to be okay with it say hey we're interviewing you for the newsletter Great. Can I jump on a Zoom call and can we record that? Fantastic. If they're okay with it, they already agreed to have the story in the newsletter. Ask them if you can also share it online. That becomes what, five, six, ten different clips for Instagram, for Facebook, whatever your strategy is. Um, right? Like th- that's a that's that's an asset. Your stories are assets yeah. that you can yes. use in many different ways. And not enough nonprofits are are doing this. And they're sitting on this gold mine of stuff that people would love to watch and see in little snippets, and they just kind of use it for one appeal, right? And they sent the entire team off somewhere to gather the story, and then it gets used for one appeal that may or may not bomb. So um, th- that, that's, that's a big one, like a big opportunity, I would say. Um, don't – I was going to say don't send annual reports. I, I know you kind <laughs> of have to, um, like – you know, like legal Twitter is going to get mad at me here. And like, it's a requirement for you to have an annual report for the annual general meeting. Yes, it is. Like make an annual report for the, for the annual general meeting. Absolutely. But man, I hope you're updating your donors more than once a year. Like, like that, you know, like do send ad hoc updates as things are happening. Um, You've got, You've got your, your values that we are for good. I'm working on, a, on giving our point of view a bit of shape and writing a manifesto. And number one is we will treat donors like they're an important part of the team. So if donors are an important part of the team, why would you just send them an update once a year? Like send them stuff as it's happened. Um, it can be a quick plain text email if something just happened. It, it can be as simple as that. Right. Like sometimes brand isn't the logo and the colors or whatever it is. Sometimes brand is. I thought you were important enough to know this as it happened, because I valued that more than saving it for a shiny story in a newsletter three months from now. Um, So those those little moments can be can be very powerful. Don't take attribution too seriously. Now, I'm 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 saying I know, I know all the other direct response marketers are going to disown me right now, but here's what I mean. Just hear You're me You're
2: safe here. You're safe here. <laughs> Say it.
1: Attribution is often wrong, uh, and it's not always the correct story, and we can put too much stock into attribution. Um, now, there is some people measure last step attribution, how the gift came in. Some people measure multi-step attribution, which is a little bit harder. Um, that's a better way of doing it. You should definitely measure attribution, but weigh that with what you know about your donors. Weigh that with the qualitative stuff. This is what we're talking about, like, like data and gut, right? Yeah. I, I give you an example of this. We used to write a weekly column in the newspaper. About homelessness. And uh, we wrote it for the CEO. It ran every single week. It ran for three years. Uh, There was a person in a community whose husband had uh, a a big business. He had sold the business. He passed away. Every fundraiser in town, like you know this, like everybody knows when these things happen, right? And so, of course, she's getting all these calls from fundraisers. And our major gift fundraiser was prospecting. He gets a call, he gets a meeting. In the meeting, she tells him, Oh, I know who you are. I've been reading your CEO's column for years. Um, so he gets the meeting. Um, the meeting goes well. So he gets a second meeting, this time brings the CEO with him. The CEO closes a $1 million gift. So who gets the attribution? The CEO thinks he got it. Like I closed that gift in that meeting. I got the million dollars. The major <laughs> gifts officer thinks it's his. I prospected. I, I knew when to ask at the right time and me writing the column, I think, oh, that was mine. She told you that she'd been reading the column for three years and that's why you got the meeting. Now, well, of course, the answer is all three sort of get the attribution, right? Yeah. It, it's yeah. hard to be like this, you know, write more columns. It's working. Yes. And uh, get more meetings with people. It's working. Yes. And involve the CEO in the meetings because clearly people like him, right? Like it's, it's all three of those that are working in concert. And it's every note that kind of gets hit at a different time, at the right time, sometimes at the wrong time, it creates a symphony and then it works. And attribution isn't always good at telling the full story. And so you might over-invest in something that, that isn't actually driving the behavior or you might under-invest in something that is contributing to the behavior, right? So it's, it, it's, awesome. like the, it's like the phone calls we talked about, like donor lifetime love. How do you quantify... That a phone call is actually going to make a difference. You think it will. It's the right thing to do. Certainly, you would treat a good friend that way. But it's going to be hard for you to show that an attribution that every single phone call made a certain difference. Together, it all adds up. Yeah.
0: Oh, This is great. I mean, because in the old days, we called like multi-channel. And then I remember there was like this omni-channel. And it's like mm-hmm. everything is omni now because yes. you're getting yeah. all these influences um, at all the, t- at the same time. So, I just think this idea of like development's a team sport. This is clearly a team sport. How do we raise that banner and celebrate together? It's a much more inclusive way to go about it, too. So, okay, I think this is a great lead in to talking specifically about KPIs. And there's a lot of metrics. And Lord knows, y'all love to break these down and talk about them, which I'm glad because thank we thank you
2: for doing that. Thank you for <laughs> on loving our behalf. That. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> what are the KPIs that really matter? And maybe give us a couple that we can. Cleanse and release. Like <laughs> you bless sure. and release, not cleanse and
1: release. Sure. Look, like retention matters. Um, but overall retention doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Um, because different sort of buckets of donors have 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 different retention rates. Um, if I have a thousand donors and my retention rate is 50%, goes down to 500 the next year it goes down to 250, the next right, I'm whittling down. Um but after five years, I'm at, I'm at, I don't know what it is, maybe hundred donors, right? But if I start with, with 10 donors and I have a 80% retention rate, year two, I'm on eight. And then like, it goes down quicker. Like the retention rate looks like it's high, but I don't have that many donors to begin with, right? And so when you're acquiring a lot of donors, your overall retention is going to look bad. Because you're dumping a lot of people into your system. And we know, we know that not everyone is a true believer. And that's okay, right? Not everyone yeah. is going to make that second gift. And so um, on its own, overall retention doesn't, doesn't tell the full story. So measure um, the retention of first-time donors separately. Measure your retention of monthly donors separately. Um, create these buckets that you're measuring separately separately. And comparing year over year, not the entire file year over year, because it's not going to be that great of a representation of what's actually going on in your file, and you might make the wrong decisions.
0: Mike, how do you, as you start to look at that data, do you find it helpful to look at some of the national reports that go into the fundraising effectiveness aspect, or is it really matter just like your particular file and just like how yeah. it's either going and how do you kind of balance the two? So many voices in our heads.
1: Uh, I. L- <laughs> I love those reports, right? I love the the fundraising effectiveness project. I like everything that a lot of CRMs are doing, great reports. I am skeptical that we should be using those reports as internal benchmarks and saying we're doing good or we're doing bad. I think we should look at them to have, to round out the picture, to have an idea what's going on. But they're an aggregate of a lot of different types of nonprofits. It's not a peer-to-peer comparison. If you're a university, it's going to be very different than social services. If you're a dog shelter down the street, it's going to be very different than UNICEF. Um, so it's hard to look at those reports and I think actually make meaningful decisions about your fundraising. I think that should be part of the of your analysis. I would put a lot more weight on your own data. Like it's you versus you out here. How did yeah. you do last year and try to improve on that? And you do that enough times. And you're going to end up on the positive end of all those benchmarks. You're going to end up beating them, right? That That's, that's the way that, that we see it, at least. Thank you for saying that.
2: And I also think it's just like what you're saying has such resonance and like you cannot compare apples to oranges. And I think it's so smart to even break out the metrics of your annual giving donors because if you lump them all in – it's going to have a mishmash approach to it. And, and I, I think this is why data is so important. And we just do not put enough emphasis on it. Because if we're watching how people move, we know that first-time donors might be a little slower you know, to come along because they're not as familiar with us as somebody yeah. who's been giving to us for 30 years. And so I think what that tells me is telling the story of the data becomes exponentially more important than any report that you can throw down because it's like, this is what our new donors are saying. And this is why that's important. Monthly donors is doing this and here's how we're going to shift. And all of a sudden you look like a badass because you totally yeah. know <laughs> what your data is doing and how your donors are moving. And if you can point to the engagement part of it, uh, in addition to yeah. the financial part, that is how you change the way that volunteers volunteers, board members, execs, bean counters, the whole group, look at the way that we're fostering these relationships. So excellent. Great point.
1: The last metric I want to throw out there, it's, good, it's a little bit, it doesn't often get measured and it's the reply rate to your emails. Ooh. So I think if you're doing email well, you are soliciting replies, um, Email doesn't have to be the newsletter-y type of email all the time. You should be doing a lot of, like I said, ad hoc updates, little things here and there, short emails. Get donors used to opening your email. It's going to be three to four sentences, and it's going to be a a short little update for me, right? Um, And every now and again, you should be asking, hey, what do you think? Or, hey, I've got some more pictures. Do you want to see them? Or, hey, would you like me to send you an update when this thing actually happens, um, and then, just look at the reply rate because you want to generate a conversation. Um, a, you really yeah. want like the community building thing you want to get people engaged, so I actually look at how many people are hitting reply on that email rather than how many people are opening it or clicking through, which is great. like measure that stuff. but I love looking at the reply rate of an email
2: that is so smart and so can smart. I just like make a correlation to social media here if somebody's replying in your email? if they 're replying on your social channels, if they 're dming you that 's just a higher level of engaged human being than somebody who 's scanning and deleting, so definitely use that as a red flag and a marker and Little pro tip from me to you be human when you reply. (laughs) Don't sound like a robot. Be so gracious in your response and see that person, ask them a question, get another reply. We're building deep and deepening these relationships. Okay, so we're going to move into our mental health minute here because you know, Mike, we prioritize the human and the worker Mm -hmm. that is in nonprofit. And when you think about annual giving and We've all lived in this, including Julie, who is producing this incredible podcast there is a lot of stuff going into annual giving. I mean, when we were running that shop, we had events, donor relations was plopped into annual giving for no good reason, you know, and you just have a bunch of tactics thrown at you. How can we stay centered? How can we create a sustainable sort of culture where we're still feeling vibrant and fueled by this work without getting burnt out?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know that I can give, uh, um, I'm learning how to do this. Um, because I'm, uh, I, you did the Enneagram series, right? I'm an Enneagram mm-hmm. three. That means that I, <gasps> could, I could get up at six in the morning and work till, till midnight. I could now, do now. that.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> I, I don't, but like, um, you know, the, the work-life sure, balance right. is hard to find. Um, a few things that I would start with, my calendar is set to 50-minute meetings, not 60-minute meetings, right? So you're going to book a meeting, it's going to be 50 minutes or 45. That gives you 10-minute buffer between calls. Going for a walk before work or after work in the work from home economy, that is kind of important. You used to have a commute where you could like get ready or decompress. You no longer have that, right? So like going for a walk before and after, even if it's 10 minutes, that gives you the, the transition. Um, Amish hour. this is like an hour before you go to bed. <laughs> oh, like no screens in the bedroom. Uh, just oh, an Amish hour before shower. you go to bed. It's Amish hour. I'm you dying. turn off the TV, you turn off the... Uh, I'm not great at that, by the way. Um, but, but it's an aspirational thing to have Amish hour. Um, we, we, we do summer Fridays. I know not everybody can do that, um, giving your staff off on Fridays. But in this, uh, when it's not the summer, like right now, we try to do no meeting Fridays. So at, at least there's one day a week where there's no meetings. Um, those are some little tactical ways uh it's easy for me to see go go see a therapist i realize not everybody has the means to do that um uh, our daughter's in therapy so i get the benefit of going to therapy with her and it's also a therapy session for me (laughs) so i i double up a little bit but um but if you're able to do that uh if we can normalize that hey it's okay right um talking to another caring human who can help you work through some stuff.
0: like Dirksen, we're so glad you came over to our house to hang out.
2: Yes, you have a permanent bedroom over here. Yeah. Just hang out <laughs> at our house. I, I, I'm sitting here marveling at the fact that you're like, I don't really know what to do. And those were four incredible examples. And I have literally never thought in the two years I've been doing We Are For Good that I need some decompression time before and after we start because that's a really, really great centering tactic. Thank you, Mike.
1: Let's shout out to our team member, Caitlin, who came up with that. So,
0: Way
2: to go, go, Caitlin. Caitlin. Keep bringing those great ideas up to the fray.
0: Hey, speaking of your team, let's round out by connecting all the ways that y'all show up. You personally show up, but also your team at Build Good shows up. Um, Just kind of point us to all the ways people can find you.
1: Yeah, probably the easiest way is to just um, go to LinkedIn and look up Mike Dirksen. Uh, you could look up Build Good on LinkedIn, but um, we haven't really invested in the corporate page <laughs> too much. Um, just a matter of focus again. But um, th- that's, an, that's an easy way to get connected. There's the Build Good fundraising podcast. It's sort of an entryway into everything we do. And of course, buildgood.com. Um, that's those are sort of the three ways, the easiest ways to find us.
0: And hey, when you reach out to Mike on LinkedIn, like tell him in the messages, you know, like what this conversation meant. Because I think all of us just love whenever we can connect on what's the kind of a common thread that brought us together. So do that.
2: And I'll just throw into that we're going to put into the show notes Mike's episode um, on the We Are For Good podcast a couple months ago. It's episode two fifty three, and I will so, tell you if you love this conversation you will love Mike's yes. conversation. I want to say it was John's favorite of that season that oh, we noted and it, it changed everything about the way we looked at direct mail. So please come find Mike. He's so knowledgeable and add on that. He's like one of the greatest humans and fathers ever. Um, just a great person. So follow his thought, thought leadership and thanks for coming on and just once again, blowing our minds, Mike. I
1: think mean, that's too kind. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you, not too kind. To say you deserve now. that. you. <laughs> Good to see you, my friend.
2: Take care.